Good to be with you guys. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm a downtown pastor. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts 17. To Acts 17. We're actually officially done with Peter. Um, did you just woo being done with Peter? Um, you're out. Get him out of here. Security. Um, just kidding. You can stay. There's grace for you. Um, but don't ever do it again. Acts 17. I'm just kidding. I don't know who you are. I'm glad you're here. Um, Acts 17. Acts 17. So in just a few short weeks, we're gonna be celebrating Easter together. I already got my baby blue on, ready for the pastels to come out in droves for us. And we'll be celebrating Easter together. And it's such a special time for us as a church for a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons it's special for the church worldwide is it's one of the few times, and maybe the only time other than Christmas, where every Christian all over the world is celebrating the same thing on the same Sunday. It's really unique in that regardless of language or geography or culture or denomination, wherever someone lands, it's this Sunday where we all celebrate the most radical, and listen Christian, the most radical and fundamental belief we have is that Jesus got up from the grave. That's the most radical thing we believe. And it's a Sunday where all of us celebrate, and so what happens, because every Christian is celebrating, it makes the world pay special attention to what we're doing. That's what happens. And especially even in our context, in our culture, even being a post-Christian society in a lot of ways, people still celebrate Easter. Like the vast majority of people in a couple of Sundays are gonna celebrate Easter in some form or fashion even if they don't believe in Jesus because Easter is a good excuse to go on a camping trip, to have a long weekend, to hunt for eggs. If you've always wanted to hunt for eggs, you can now do that that weekend, it's okay. It's just a thing that we do. Easter is this unique time in our culture because similar to Christmas, to Christmas, but probably more so than Christmas, Easter kind of prompts all sorts of spiritual conversations and questions. So people who never come to church will come to church. People who've never asked you about your faith or the church you're a part of will now maybe ask you if you're having services on Easter and what time they are. And as the world is kind of perked up looking at us and asking questions of us, what begins to happen in every Christian, you begin to feel this pressure of, well, I need to be able to explain or make sense of my faith or our traditions or my church to these people. Words like evangelism, phrases like sharing your faith get used within the church as we think about engaging those who don't know Jesus. Your church is gonna hand you business cards and they're coming for you to hand out to your coworkers and your neighbors for you to invite them to Sunday service. Now for some of you, when we start talking about this, it's gonna produce anxiety in you. You're gonna immediately imagine the worst case scenario of me thinking, if I hand this out of my work, am I gonna get fired? What if they ask me a question about other ancient myths where someone rose from the dead and I don't know what to say? I don't know, you start getting anxious about what to say when it comes to talking to those outside of the faith. Others of you, though, are the opposite. You're so excited that this church finally cares about evangelism. It's about time. I can't wait to leave, to leave a business card for my waiter or waitress when I give them a terrible tip. Here's your, here you go. Here's the gift of life, but no money for you. Like, like that, by the way, we tip really great at this church, right? If you are gonna leave a verse on the receipt, you tip phenomenal. That's how that works, okay? But we get excited because you want people to know Easter's not about bunnies, it's not about religious talk, it's about Jesus. And then I think honestly for most of us, Easter's this time where candidly we've been a part of it before, we'll probably invite some friends, we may have a conversation, but honestly we're not that anxious about it or excited about it, it's just one of the things that we do as Christians. You may even wear a tie in two weeks and that'll be the extent to what you did for Easter. See, a lot of us, we're just not very, honestly, we're not very concerned with the outside world. We'd love for them to believe, but 
If they don't, that's okay. I'm gonna go about my life as everything's normal. And I'm sure all of us bounce around from camp to camp to camp, anxious, excited, apathetic, when it comes to engaging those who are outside of the faith. And Easter isn't and can't be the only time you invite people to this church. It can't be the only time you have spiritual conversation because Christian, you have to understand, part of knowing and loving Jesus is helping other people know and love Jesus. It's essential to it. If you're knowing and loving Jesus does not equate to helping others know and love Jesus, then I don't know what you mean by know and love Jesus. He's made it clear, but all of us have different personalities and expectations and experiences as, as to what it means to do that for other people. So here's what I wanna do. As we enter into this time of Easter where people are maybe more spiritually minded and interested, I want to help equip you on how to engage the world in a helpful way. I want you to be equipped as a Christian to know there are people in this city who will listen to you in ways they'll never listen to me or anyone else from this stage. So we want to equip you with this by looking at the Apostle Paul and how he interacted with the Athenians in Acts 17. You're gonna see three things from this text. How to see the world, how to engage the world, and what to expect from the world. How to see, how to engage, what to expect. First thing, how do we view and see the world? Look at Acts 17, 16. This is what the word of God says. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The first phrase, look at that phrase. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, So Paul's on a missionary journey, he gets separated from his companions, and he goes to Athens to do what? To wait. He's just waiting. He didn't go there to evangelize, he didn't go there to sightsee, he's just hanging out in Athens, waiting for his companions to meet up with him and move on from there. And as he's sitting there, he's taking in, he says he's taking in the culture, he's taking in the architecture, he's taking in the sights and the sounds, and it says he was provoked. He saw all this incredible art and music and intellectual prowess of the Athenians because Athens was the cultural capital of the Mediterranean world at that point in time. Rome had become the political epicenter, but Athens was still the cultural epicenter of the world. And so he's seeing all this incredible talent and all these incredible structures, and he's looking at it and he's provoked. And that word provoked in other translations says distressed or grieved. He's grieved. Because what he sees, he doesn't just simply see people and objects. What he sees are human beings giving themselves away, giving their lives away, their loves, their worship to created things that can't satisfy. That's what he sees. He says, the text says, he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, in Athens, These idols were overt and clear to see. They were actual statues that represented the worship, the religious worship to Roman and Greek gods. And if you've ever traveled the world, you've seen things like this before. I remember when I went to China when I was in college, we would visit these Buddhist monasteries and temples. And the architecture is unbelievable. It's so unique and the places are so beautiful and serene. And then what you see is them lighting incense to these statues They're objects of worship. Now they would say it's bigger than just a statue, but the statue represents what they're worshiping. And you see, okay, this is what it means to worship idols. And now in our context, in our city, you're not gonna see many statues. 
I can see any overt, explicit idols that we worship, but I want you to know that our city is full of them. See, an idol is not simply, according to the Bible, an idol is not simply a physical representation of a God. An idol, according to the scriptures, is any created thing you and I love more and treasure more and trust in more and sacrifice more for than God. An idol is any created thing that we trust more and bank on more than we bank on God. And idols, listen, in our city, in your life, they're not always inherently contradictory to God and evil. They're not always contradictory to God in their nature. Most of the idols in your life and in our city are actually good gifts from God. Most idols in our city are actually good gifts from God. They are good gifts that we're meant to receive in gratitude to God, but instead what we do is we receive these gifts and we replace God with them. We take his gifts, we go, I'd rather have this than you. So instead of a gift like family or sex or artistic expression or technology or money being something that we're grateful for and we honor God with by submitting to his word when he speaks about those gifts, instead we say, no, no, I don't wanna use this the way you tell me to use it, I want it for myself, and so I'm gonna trust in and bank on this thing to give me joy and hope and meaning, even if God's word says otherwise. I take your gifts and I replace you with them. That's what an idol is. So when Paul sees Athens, he doesn't see simply beautiful structures and unique expressions of culture. He sees human attempts to replace the divine. He sees human attempts to replace the divine with our own image. Now listen, it's not that Paul or Christians are against cultural expressions or art or music or films or the exchange of intellectual ideas. Christians are not against that. Paul just knows they make terrible gods. They make terrible gods. And he knows that the God that all these people that you were made for, he knows God's made a way back to him. There's a way back to the creator, but it's not through created things, it's through Jesus. And so Paul sees this scene and his love for God and his love for people is what provokes his spirit. See, what happens is he's distressed, he's grieved because he loves both parties. He loves God. And he loves people, and all this scene is doing is showing the massive disconnect between the two. Listen, your emotions, your attitudes are driven by your perceptions and your loves. What you feel is driven by what you think you're seeing. So if you see a scene where someone you love is being harmed or hurt, something will happen in you. You'll be provoked, you'll be distressed, you'll be grieved because if someone or something we love is being degraded or belittled, we will be provoked. So, the less love we have for God and for others, the less we'll be provoked when we see them separate from one another. Because your attitudes and emotions follow what you perceive to be happening and what you love. This is really crucial for you to understand this because Paul was not provoked because God came to him and whispered to him in his mind, go reach Athens. That's not what happened. We act as if the way I can engage people who are outside of the faith 
It's by waiting for the Holy Spirit to lead me and give me direction and give me some insight and give me some special assurance that this is going to work out great for me. But instead, Paul shows us, no, what provokes us is a heart of love. Look at what happens in verse 16. Look at it again. What provoked him? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit, not the Holy Spirit, his spirit was provoked within him. Now, the Holy Spirit was working, but what was happening? What, what did he experience? He saw that the city was full of idols. Too often, you and I make following Jesus overly mystical, overly mystical. We think and we speak as if the Holy Spirit, the way he leads us, is he's always gonna direct us and show us exactly what to do in every circumstance, in every situation. So what we need to do to be led by the Holy Spirit is to sit back and just wait for him to move. I'm waiting, Holy Spirit. And so what happens is we begin to kind of ask for signs. Lord, if he puts his bag down, I will speak to him. Whoop, no bag, too late, moving on. Like, like that's what happens. We create these forms of test to know if the Spirit's leading me this way. Now listen, there will be times the Spirit operates in a unique way and there's unique circumstances and you just know this is what you have to do. I'm not excluding that. But the majority of the time when it comes to engaging those who don't believe, being led by the Spirit is being a person defined by love. That's how you know if you're led by the Spirit. Are you a person defined by love? Are you a person defined by love for God and love for people? The Holy Spirit was leading Paul, but he was leading Paul because he had transformed him into a completely new person who had a sincere love for God and love for people. So when he sees the disconnect happening and both of them being belittled and both of them being degraded in Athens, what does he do? He's grieved. Because when someone you love is being harmed or hurt, you're distressed, you're provoked. So when, when he saw the Athenians worshiping idols, it broke his heart because they're not just another animal on this planet. They're not just some species of creation. This is the pinnacle of creation that God made. When he sees human beings, he sees image bearers. He sees men and women who were made by and for God and they're settling for such cheap joys. That's what he sees. That's why he's provoked. He's broken that these glorious image bearers are settling for such little joy. And he loved God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the holy one who's without rival or equal, the one who entered his own creation and humbled himself and died for us. There's no one else worthy of praise or adoration or trust or sacrifice than him. And here's his creation, everyone he's made, everyone he's loved, and they continue to rebel against him. He's heartbroken that his God is not receiving the worship he deserves. He's grieved. The Holy Spirit does not tell you what to do in any and every circumstance. He transforms you into a person with a heart and eyes defined by love. So now you see it all the time. The leading was in changing you to see clearly, to be provoked and act on that distress that you have. So church, the question for you is this. When you see Austin, what do you see? What do you see? See your coworkers, you see your neighbors, what do you see? When you see South by Southwest, what do you see? 
Do you interpret that completely devoid of God? Do you interpret it as if life is nothing more than human behaviors and anthropological artifacts? Are you grieved not because music and story and technology and intellectual ideas is a bad thing? Are you grieved because they make such terrible gods? Are you grieved because you know the fullest expression of any of those gifts for human flourishing is not found apart from God? Are you grieved because these image bearers think about God so little and God is getting so little of the worship he so rightly deserves? What do you see? The reason we're not provoked to care about our city is because we just think it's a great city with great culture. We don't see these people settling. We don't see sorrow and pain as something we engage in, it's something someone else should do. We take our faith and we privatize it, keeping the best things for ourselves and giving the world our scraps. What do you see? What Paul saw broke his heart. And that's how mission and engaging with those outside of our church will never work if what you see doesn't move you. That's why we have to be people defined by love. So we see the world not as our enemies, not as our competitors, not as our rivals, but as people who honestly, though they're not Christians, though they're not sons and daughters of God, they're, not, they're a lot like us in a lot of ways. And we want them to know the love of God. That's what we see. We want them to see that there's meaning and purpose and life that they have yet to even tap into. That's what we see. And then we engage the way Paul engaged. Look at verse 16 and 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And then he moves into action. Not just emotion, he moves into action. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he's provoked to actually engage. And the way he engages this culture, I think it will help us a lot. Verse 17, what does it say he did? So he reasoned. That word reason can mean conversed and discussed. He engages them in dialogue. And notice where he does it. In very overt spiritual places like synagogues and also in secular spaces like a marketplace. See, when it comes to reasoning about the gospel, there's no sacred secular divide, it can happen anywhere. And too often when you begin to engage those outside of our faith, I think inherent within Christian witness, we think we have to have a speech prepared. We think like when they ask the question, we go, <clears throat> well in the beginning. Like, like we think we have to be able to have a 20 minute monologue. But I love what Paul is showing you, is the gospel is something that can be reasoned about. It's something that, be, that can be discussed and have a conversation. And I think, honestly, most people in our context, in our city, for the most part, initially, initially would be more interested in having a conversation with you about faith than hearing a sermon. I really think that. I'm not saying they won't check out sermons or come to a Sunday service, you shouldn't invite them. I think you should. I'm saying there's a lot of people in our city who the initial conversation with you will be much more helpful because they have actual questions. 
So in order to have a helpful reasoning, dialogue, conversation about the Christian faith, let me give you two things to do. Ask good questions and be an active listener. Ask good questions and be an active listener. Church, we can be terrible at both. We really can. And not because we're evil or we don't love them. I think because we're so concerned about getting to our gospel presentation that we're gonna force them there no matter what. That they have a question about, hey, I'm curious about evolution and creation. You're like, yeah, yeah, your sins need to be forgiven. They're like, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't ask that question. Don't care. Like, we gotta get there. Because I have a presentation I need to get to. I remember when I was a new Christian, I did this so terribly. I never asked questions because I wanted to share the thing I wanted to share. And also, if I did ask a question, I didn't really listen to their answer and have it affect what I was gonna say at all. You need to ask good questions to hear what are they actually struggling with? What are their actual hangups? What's their story that has shaped the way they see God? So there's all sorts of questions that you could ask. Let me just give you one that I found to be helpful with people. Is I'll ask the question of, what has your experience with church been like? What's your experience with church been like? I, I don't go immediately to their theology or how they view God or knowledge. I go to, what's been your experience with the church, the people of God? And sometimes it's nothing, but a lot of the times they're gonna tell me stories that's gonna help me understand what their hangups are. And when you hear someone's story, do you know what it does? It creates empathy in you. When you hear their story and you go, oh, if that would have happened to me when I was 12, and I probably feel very similar to you if not for God's grace in my life. Oh, that's been your experience? Man, I'm so sorry. Like, if I would have gone through that suffering, if I would have had that happen, then oh, I have empathy for you now. In church, we need to have more of it for our friends who don't believe. Understanding for where they're coming from. And what will happen is as they're sharing their hurts and their story and their dreams and their hangups, you'll be able to more accurately and be more helpful in showing them who God is in relation to them, where they are. But you'll never get there if you don't ask good questions and you don't listen. And also in these conversations, as you're having them, be respectful. And here's what I would say. Try to find common ground. Try to find common ground. Let me just tell you this. Every Christian I know who is really good at helping those who don't believe see the gospel and see who Jesus is, every Christian I know who's effective at that does not start the conversation by telling the other person how wrong they are. Now, I know a lot of people will say, you need to start by telling them how wrong they are, but most of those people that I found don't interact with a ton of people who don't believe in Jesus. People who interact a ton with those who believe in Jesus and are helpful in bringing them along tend to at least start with what we have in common. What are common beliefs we have that we share together? And then they reason from there in a respectful way who God is. Watch Paul do this in verse 22. So Paul gets, is sharing the gospel with people. He gets invited to the Oropagus to share ideas. Here's what happens. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, men of Athens, watch how he interacts with them. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And Paul's like, I get it, you're covering all your bases, like in case you're good. Like that's, 
Like you've been there for like Hindu, Buddha, God, whatever. Whoever will save me, I'm in. And he says, I see that. But what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. First, notice his respect towards them. He doesn't start by demeaning what they're doing because he knows they're image bearers. No matter what they believe, they're image bearers of God, they deserve respect. So he doesn't demean their worship. He doesn't ridicule them for what they're doing. He says, your devotion and your religious fervor are clear. There's no denying that you genuinely care about worshiping some God and hoping that your prayers are reaching him. He's respectful. And then what he does is he uses common beliefs that he has with their culture as a way to reason towards the gospel. He uses, hey, we both believe in this same thing as a way to point to who God is. He's gonna do it by pointing to their pagan poets. Paul's gonna quote their pagan poets as evidence for why his God is true. Look at what he does in verse 28 and 29. He's finding common ground. So verse 28, it's the first quotation, not of the Old Testament, but of a pagan poet. For, here's a quotation, in him we live and move and have our being. First quote. Then he says, as even some of your own poets have said, second quote, for we are indeed his offspring. What is he doing? He's saying, these poets may be wrong about a lot of stuff, but they're right on this. I agree with them. They said themselves, your guys said themselves that we are God's offspring. He finds common ground. But then what does he do? He reasons from that common ground. Say, well, if, we, if we both believe that God made us, then he reasons to say, then why would we ever think we could create an image of God in our own likeness? Look at verse 29. He says, being then God's offspring, being that we both believe that God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Common ground to reason towards God. Common ground to even give them a little bit of a critique in a respectful way to say, if we both believe this, then what I believe stands to reason it's more sure than what you believe. That's what he's doing. So there's a myriad of ways you can do this in actual conversations, but here's the thing. You, using this quote for your neighbor is not gonna work. You're like, well, as your poets have said, in him we live, move, they're like, who's that? I don't know, I think it's a Joshua tree or something. I like, like you, anybody know you two in here? I don't know where that quote was from. Um, that's not going to work. So let me give you two examples, just two examples, a philosophical one and a personal one of how you can build common ground with people and talking to them about faith. So first, a more philosophical way to build common ground. So one shared belief that Christians and non-Christians have right now in our context is human rights. The thing that we believe and every non-Christian I've ever met believes is in the fight that a human being, regardless of position or status, is worthy of respect and dignity and honor. Church, no one should fight for human rights more than us. Nobody should because we believe it comes from the image of God on every human being. So when we see people in our lives who are passionate about human rights for some group of people they feel is underrepresented, we should affirm that. I agree that every human being is worthy of respect, that even those without power should be afforded the same rights as everyone else, common belief. But then what we can do with our friends, we can help them see 
and go, as much as we agree on that, that if there, if there is no God and no image that we bear of his, then human rights is something we've made up. You, you can reason backwards from this common belief of we both believe in human rights, absolutely. But if there is no God, there is no real basis for human rights. We help them see the only way human rights actually exist is if there is a God whose image we bear and we have a special relationship and accountability to him. Because if all you have, no matter how strongly you feel about human rights, if all you have is Darwinism, then the strong should devour the weak, not protect them. You help them see that. You start with a common belief in human rights and you work your way back to say, that actually stems from who God is. And it can't stand on its own without him. It's a more philosophical way to do it. But secondly, more personal. Build common ground by appealing to the common human experience of experiencing guilt and failure and hurt. Appeal to that. Everyone you come in contact with, everyone is trying to make sense of their own sense of shame and dissatisfaction and boredom and wounds and pain and hurt. Everyone has to make sense of that. Everyone has to at some point make sense of death and how do I cope with that suffering? Too often in our pride church, we think what the world needs to see is a strong, put together, competent person in order to win them to Christ. Nah, that's not your story anyway. Your story is not you were good and Jesus made you better. Your story is you were dead and he made you alive. That's who you are. Don't tell them a false narrative that you're some great put together person. You, of all people, should know how inconsistent you are. Because when you talk about how you feel shame, and you talk about how you feel like a failure, you talk about the ways you've been wounded, you talk about the ways you've been hurt, the ways suffering has affected you in your life, people can relate to that because they have similar stories. They understand that common ground. And then when you tell them that story and you're actually vulnerable and transparent, you can tell them, this is how Jesus continues to meet me in my mess and give me forgiveness and love. You can tell them that even when I continue to fail in these very specific ways, here's how God continues to show mercy and grace to me. Because deep down, everyone is really struggling with the fact, will God actually forgive me? Will he actually love me? Your vulnerability and transparency is a great starting point. Every time I've done it with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, it's always very refreshing for both of us because we all know that's how most people feel and no one actually ever says it. The gospel enables you to be honest more than anybody else because you have grace for everything you confess. And that's the point. Wherever you start, whatever common ground you start from, be sure that you eventually get to Jesus. Like don't just build bridges for days. You're going somewhere. Please, Make sure you get them to who Jesus is. He's the goal. The goal isn't just simply to relate or to win an argument about politics or social reform or church growth and all those things are good things and have implications, but I want you to know the goal is for them to see. That's the goal. So they could see Jesus for who he is. That's Paul's goal. His goal is to reason with them 
all the way towards seeing Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 18, look at how Paul's speaking. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Important side note here. What I have found too with people who don't believe, when you talk to them about who Jesus actually is, you have found what they've rejected as Jesus is actually some false form of Christianity that you would also reject with them. They're they're like, I would never believe that I would have to be good enough for God to love me. You're like, great, me neither, that's terrible. Like like you can, what I've found is people have rejected Jesus when really they've rejected some false form of Christianity. When you talk about his, who he is and his resurrection, sometimes they will tell you, I've heard this, you've probably heard this. I've never heard that before. I thought Christianity was mostly about being a better person. It's about something else? Oh yeah, because you preach Jesus in the resurrection. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, talking about Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know the verse, John three sixteen. God so loved the world he gave his only son. You love the world so much that you give them Jesus. Love them enough to get them to who he is and what he's done. Tell them about the forgiveness of sins you have because of his death. Tell them about his resurrection that qualifies them to share in the coming kingdom of God that's gonna transform every aspect of our society and world. Get to him. His impending kingdom will crush you. It will crush you if you don't honor Jesus above all. Church, there are real joys and real consequences for how we view and interpret and respond to Jesus. So get to him. He's the best part. He's the best part. That's how we engage. See the world, we engage the world. Last thing, what to expect from the world. We're almost done. 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So, when Paul went, so, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Listen, talking about the resurrection provokes all sorts of responses. For Paul, what happened? Some mocked, some were curious, some believed. You can expect the same. Now what I found is Christians tend to talk most about the ways we've been mocked and when people come to faith for the very first time. And it's understandable because those are the most extreme responses. But what I have found is it makes most of us think that every conversation has to end in a climactic finish. As if you share the gospel and it's gonna end with, I shall curse you or bless you from the person who's listening to you. But the truth is, Most conversations end much more like the second group of people. Most of them are not this extreme finish, but actually it's more in the middle. That second uh, response where they say, we will hear you again about this. I think that's most conversations. Most conversations you have are going to end that way because they're gonna hear you describe who Jesus is, what grace is, 
what human brokenness and sin is like, and they're gonna be interested and intrigued. But, and they're not gonna think you're stupid for what you believe, and, and they're not gonna think it's very impressive either. They're just gonna say, huh, I'll hear you again about that later. And some of them may just be saying it to be nice. They'll go, yeah, I'll hear you again. Please don't ever call me, that'd be great. Like, like they, they may do that. But most people respond in that way because I, I don't know anyone who has believed in Jesus the very first time they heard. Normally, it's the 485th time you've heard the gospel and that's when you believe. Why? That's when the Spirit decided for it to happen. But along the way, there's a lot of like, huh, that's interesting. And this is why having friendships with those who don't believe in Jesus and hanging out with them as our friends is so crucial to helping them see who Jesus is because as they live their lives, you know this, there's gonna be certain seasons and circumstances that force them and prompt them to deal with those real deep existential questions that every human being has to deal with. But you know you can't force that. You can't force people to deal with the fact, how do I make sense of human rights if I don't believe in God? You can't force the fact, how do I make sense of death and suffering? How do I make sense of beauty and joy? And you can't force those questions, but when those questions arise in their life, guess who they're going to talk to about it? Their friends. And if you have been their friend already, you'll be a safe person to talk to and a great conversation to have. Outsiders to our faith should not be projects for us to fix. They are people for us to love in close proximity. That's our goal as a church. That those outside the faith should be able to belong to us before they believe with us. That they should be able to be around us and be our friends and be in our homes and come to our parties and come to our Sunday services and get to ask questions and get to have dialogue and they will be known and loved by us long before they believe with us. That's most people's story anyway. Most people's story is a group of people helping them, carrying them along in love as they question and seek to understand the gospel. Church, we should be the most kind, compassionate, patient people on the planet. Because we know, once again, how inconsistent we are and how much patience God shows us. So for those who are struggling and questioning and don't believe every point of doctrine we believe or don't agree on every ethical issue we believe, we have patience and grace because God is is patient toward us. They should be able to ask tough questions and us say, I don't know the answer to that. And as we go along, God will begin to work in their hearts in ways we couldn't. Because listen, I can't save me. How am I gonna save you? You couldn't save yourself. The weight to save them is not on you. The weight on you is just simply to love them and show them who Jesus is and give them ways to engage in your life and the life of this church, like inviting them to Easter. Because I want you to know, I hope you understand, people are much more open to spiritual conversations than you may think. Don't think where we are as a society means people don't care about spirituality. Nothing could be more untrue but they may wanna hear more from you than somebody they never heard of before. I want you to know that God wants to use you. He gave you the Holy Spirit to make you a person of love so you'd be used in this city to help bring his lost sons and daughters home. If you're here and you don't believe in Jesus and your friend brought you, put them to the test afterwards, see if they can actually do all the things we just talked about, right? 
We're glad you're here. Because we really believe as a people that all that is beautiful and good and right about our city, coming under Christ and believing in him only makes it more beautiful and more creative and causes more human flourishing. And everything that's broken, everything that's degrading to God and belittling to people, everything that is wrong about our city, God can actually restore through the love and the mercy and the service of his people towards the city they love. Because that's what Easter is, right? Easter should remove the cynic from all of us. Because Easter says God takes what is dark, hopeless, and dead, and he produces light and love and forgiveness and eternal life through it. Church, you were made for this purpose. Play it. Play it. And you'll be astonished to see how God takes your little efforts and your little love and your little life and multiplies it to the nations. Let's pray together. Father, it is so easy to spend our whole lives, God, concerned with self. Father, I just wanna confess to you how easy it is for me to concern my life with me and those closest to me and my future and my bank account and how I'm perceived and God, how that saps all the joy in my life when I'm self-obsessed and God, it does for all of us. So God, I'm asking you to make us a people who genuinely worry less about self because God, we know you're for us because you're protecting us and providing for us and you love us and you forgive us and you're going to be with us through every circumstance. God, would you give us eyes to see this city the way you see it? Would you increase our love for you and your name that we will not be content, Jesus, until every person in this city knows how great you are? That we won't be content, Jesus, until you receive the praise and the worship and adoration you deserve. And God, increase our love for people. That we would see them trying to fix themselves in all sorts of ways and wouldn't demean them or degrade them. We'd go come near to them. We'd love them. We'd show them with our lives what it's like to be broken yet loved by you. That we'd be a church for people who are hurting and longing would find a safe spot. That what would define us most is our love. Holy Spirit, change us into that. Change us into the most bold, kind, courageous, gentle, loving, creative people in this city. Because we want them to know not that we're good and they're not, but God, you're good and we're not. We trust you. Thank you for giving our life such meaning and purpose. God, give us zeal during this season. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen, church, let's stand, sing together.